you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, where this morning we are going to finish the point that we never got to last week. But it's going to be a whole sermon. And this, of course, was the providence of God. Because as I was preparing that one point two weeks ago... I was very convicted about the miserable state of my prayer life, and I thought, well, at least it's only one point, and now it's a whole sermon. So I kind of feel like Jonah, and uh, that I was running from God's will, and God sent the fish of the great fish to swallow up time, and now I've been spit up behind the pulpit again to preach, not repentance, but prayer. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And I was afraid of this. I just can't say everything I want to say this morning. And so next week we're going to talk about prayer too. And I can't give you any guarantees about the week after that either. But you know, when you have something to do, like a surgery, you don't just cut somebody open and say, time's up. We'll have to leave them open. You got to sew them up. So to so come to our text, remember what's going on here. Just give you a little bit of background. Jesus is in the early days of his ministry. He's ministering around Capernaum, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. He has just healed a man of a severe case of leprosy. And he tells this man, don't tell anyone. Go show yourself to the priest. Yet according to Mark chapter 1 verse 45, the healed leper went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So they're mobbing him. Jesus is enjoying this incredible popularity and fame, and just think about the ministry opportunities here. Here you've got a perfect preacher. With a perfect message, he can heal people, he's the son of God, and now he has this incredible opportunity to make a huge impact on the people of Israel. And you would think that immediately he would send the disciples to, you know, Caesarea Philippi and rent the amphitheater there so he could start a, you know, a healing crusade. But he doesn't do that. You would think that he might uh, hire some professional um, promoters to promote the cause so he could get more people to hear him. But that's not what happens either. What does Jesus do? He moves away from the populated areas. But what is more surprising is what we learn in verse 16 of Luke chapter 5. Look there. But Jesus himself, the text says, often would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. I don't know about you, but that one verse, just it just lays me low. Because I know I don't pray enough. I know that I don't praise God enough. I know I don't ask him for help enough. I don't sneak away to pray enough. And I'm rebuked when I read that Jesus himself would often slip away in the wilderness to pray. I don't know if that convicts you, but it convicts me. And what I'm going to do this morning is something a little out of the ordinary. In that I am going to use the first point of the sermon to explain the text. 
And then I will give you three additional artificial points that address the topic of prayer. There will be six artificial points that we will address this week and next that deal with critical aspects of prayer that you need to know if you are going to pray in a way that gives glory to God. So let's look at the first point, which is an examination of the text. And it is this. Learn from Jesus how to pray. Look at verse 16. The text says, but Jesus himself. This is emphatic. Luke writes as if almost surprised, but Jesus himself, even Jesus prayed. And you can understand why Luke probably writes this way. Jesus was the son of God. Jesus had no sin. Jesus was enjoying huge success in, and popularity, but Jesus himself prayed. The application is clear. If, if Jesus, the holy son of God who never sinned, needed to pray, then sin-cursed pea brains like us need to pray all the more. Secondly, notice the frequency of Jesus' prayers. The text says Jesus would often slip away to pray. If you have the NESB, you might notice the word often appears in italics. This means that word often doesn't appear in the Greek text. That is, there isn't a Greek, an actual Greek word often to be translated to the English word often. But yet, if you look at pretty much every modern translation except for the English Standard Version, you will find that word often there. Why? It's because the phrase or word slip away, or as some modern translators translations have it withdrew is a present active participle which means jesus was always and continually in the practice of doing that which means he did it often so they put it in there the point of application again is clear you and i need to pray often especially during times of great ministry success and activity because that is the context we find jesus doing it in this text before us you know sometimes when things are going well we become like the people of israel who when they got into land and enjoyed the blessings they forgot god sometimes when we're doing ministry we can be so happy about what's going on, so excited about what's going on and people coming to the Lord and people growing and we kind of think to ourselves, oh, is this not Babylon the great which I have built by my own power and outstretched arm? We begin to be enamored with our own ingenuity, our own programs, our own um, intellect and putting together such a neat program that is obviously creating some great effects because of what we did. And we forget that, no, it's not because of what we did. It's because what God did through us. It's what God is doing. And so we can often become enamored with our own abilities, our own successes, and forget that they're really not our abilities. They're given to us by God abilities, and their success is given to us by God. And yet we learn from Jesus that even though it was a time of heavy ministry, even though people in mass were hearing the good, the word of God, which is a good thing, even though people were getting their physical needs met and being healed, which is an incredible thing, even though all of that was happening and the crowds were pressing around him and they were begging him, Jesus would leave them often and pray. And I don't know about you, but that just, yeah, that just makes me just want to crumble down and repent. John Owen, one of the greatest theologians who has ever lived, and one of the hardest to read, 
If you're thinking I'm going to go get one of his books, make sure you get one of the new ones that's kind of, you know, distilled down for normal people. Said this to pastors, he who spends more time in the pulpit before his people than he does in his prayer closet in private on behalf of his people is but a sorry watchman indeed. That is convicting. That is convicting. But the point is clear. We need to make sure our ministry is saturated in prayer. We must never neglect communion with God, even to minister to people with legitimate needs. Even if we could do it, we never neglect God to do that. And that's what we learn. Third, we see the location of prayer. The text says in verse 16 that Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness to pray. And what we're seeing here is basically the same thing Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 6, isn't it? Jesus, when teaching the disciples, said what? When you pray, go into your closet, go to your secret place and pray to your heavenly father in secret. And your father who hears in secret will what? Reward you. And this is what Jesus is doing. Of course, Jesus had no home. But when you go through the Gospels, you find out he snuck away at night. He snuck away to a lonely place. He snuck away to the mountain. Why? Because he wanted to get away from distractions. He wanted to get away from people. He wanted to just be alone in a quiet place without interruption. So he could focus himself upon the Father, praise him, thank him, and ask him for things. So what do we learn from verse 16? It's this. One, you need to take time to pray. Two, you need to take time to pray often. Three, get away from distractions and pray. Four, make sure your ministry is undergirded with prayer. Five, don't neglect spending time with God because of ministry demands. And of course, each one of those could be a whole sermon. Moving on. So that is the essence of verse 16. But now let's look at three critical concepts of prayer, which you need to know when you pray. And I want you to know, I am going to totally confuse some of you people right now. I mean, what I say isn't going to be confusing, but trying to figure out how it works is. And so I just warn you right now just to listen up. To pay attention because we're going to cover these three critical aspects of prayer now that I know in many of your lives, it's going to destroy your whole thought process about prayer. And that's good because a lot of you need to have your thought processes destroyed. First is this. You need to know who you are praying to in the world. People talk about, oh, we need to pray, but they never add on the object to that, do they? Pray to who? It's almost like prayer in and of itself is like some sort of, you know, stretching exercise that we do to make ourselves feel better. No, there's an object to prayer. It's not you need to pray, but you need to pray to God. And not just any God, but a specific God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to prayer, we need to have a clear understanding of who we are praying to. Because if you don't understand who you're praying to, it's very difficult to really give glory to God in your prayers. Because you will have all these false concepts if you don't understand God correctly. So let me just remind you of some aspects of God, some 
character traits of God that you need to really remember when you pray. And they are this. One, God is all sovereign. What that means is he is in complete control of everything. And I mean everything. He is in control of the entire universe and everything down to an atom. As Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every time you flip a coin, every time it says heads, it's from the Lord. Every time it says tells, it's from the Lord. From the Lord, not from chance. From the Lord. Secondly, you need to know that God is all-powerful. What that means is God can do anything he wants. His power is infinite. Psalm 115.3 says, But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. His power is infinite. Third, God is all-knowing. What that means is that he's all knowing. He knows everything. There's not a single thing God doesn't know. He knows everything that will, everything that has, everything that is happening. He even knows everything that could happen, all the contingencies. God could tell you every single thing that could have happened in history if any other thing was changed at any point in history. He knows all the probabilities. He is all-knowing. Psalm 147.5 says God's understanding is infinite. Fourth, know that God is all-wise. This is very important. Because God is all-wise, it means this. You can't improve upon anything God does. Because God's wisdom is infinite, his plan is perfect, and you can only mess it up. If you tried to think of a different way, his plan is perfect. Romans eleven thirty three says, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He has infinite wisdom. Five, God is eternal. What this means is God is outside of time. He is an eternal like us. We're born and then we go on into the future. God exists apart from time. He exists in what theologians call the eternal now. He lives in all times simultaneously. Think about that. Think about the implications. God's not waiting for something to happen. He doesn't wait. He's outside of time. Sure, he works within time, but time is in God. God is not in time. He exists in the past, the present, and the future simultaneously. I know it's a mind-bender, it's just the way it is. And we as finite created beings exist in time. But time itself and all of creation exists in the being of God. And Paul talked about this in Acts 17.26 where he talks about all creation being appointed to its certain times and that All of us, he says in verse 28 of Acts 17, live and move and have our being in the midst of God. All of creation is in God. God is over it all. So God is eternal. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Now you might ask yourself, so Jack, okay, we've got a little bit of attributes of God here. Uh, How does this make a difference? I am so glad you asked. Because we're getting there. First of all, know this, 
because God is all sovereign, all powerful, all knowing, all wise and eternal. He has decreed everything whatsoever that comes to pass. Listen to what Isaiah 46, 10, 11 says. It describes God as declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, God says, this is what the end of the book is. It hasn't even, I haven't even written it yet, but this is the end. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. God declares what hasn't been done yet. Saying, my purpose will be established. In other words, God's not looking in the future and seeing what's happened. He makes it happen. My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all of my good pleasure Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of a purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. People, you need to understand when you're praying. God has a sovereign plan and you by prayer cannot alter it. Think of it this way. Pick any prophecy you want in the Bible. And why do I say prophecy? Because prophecy is a glimpse into the plan of God, isn't it? When God puts a prophecy in the Bible, he's just saying, hey, look at this is what I'm going to do. This is part of my plan. And I'm going to let you look at this little tiny piece. Let's just pick the rapture, for instance. You know that God is going to catch away the saints and glorify them. Now, how many people do you think it would take to pray to make God not do that? God's going to do it. I don't care how many people pray. You cannot undo the plan of God. You know that and I know that. So when you pray, don't think you can. In the areas that are not talked about in the Bible. God's decree encompasses everything. This is why Bingham Hunter in his book, The God Who Hears, rightly defines prayer with these words. Prayer is the means by which God gives us What he wants. Prayer is not the means by which God gives you what you want. Unless what you want is what God wants. God is moving to accomplish his will. This is why if you want your prayers answered, you have to pray according to what? His will. Now picture this. Picture you're standing on the bank of a huge rushing river. Okay, now as you're standing there next to that river, that river represents the will of God and it's going in a certain direction. Now, when you pray, you get your little prayer stick and you throw it into the river and you pray, Lord, please take this downstream. And guess what? It goes downstream. But you know what? If you threw that in there and said, Lord, please take it upstream, it goes downstream. Listen, your prayer didn't make the river. Your prayer didn't cause the river to flow in a certain direction. The river existed before you got there. The current is by God's power. It's sending it in a certain direction. You merely threw in your stick and asked God to make it go downstream, and it did. You prayed according to his will. You think, well, Jack, I don't know, where does the Bible teach that? Oh, okay. First John 5.14. Let's give you a few texts here. First John 5:14 which says this is the confidence we have before him. So if you want to have confidence before him in prayer, what is your confidence? Here it is. That if we ask anything according to his will, 
he hears us. Implied, if you don't ask according to his will, you don't get answered. You don't get what you ask for. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew 6, verse 10, when he was giving the disciples a model prayer. He said, you should pray, your will be done, right? Why? Because prayer is about getting God's will done, not your will. We see Jesus in the garden in Luke 22, verse 42, as he's getting ready to die on the cross. Uh, He asked the father, father, if it be thy will, take this cup of suffering from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. In Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, we are told that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer according to the will of God. In James 4.15, James rebukes his readers for their selfish prayers and their presumptuous lifestyle. And he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. The point is this. When you're praying to an all-sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, eternal God who has declared the end from the beginning, you must pray according to his will. And if you don't know something's God's will, then you add on the phrase, yet not my will, but thine be done. You must pray according to God's will. God is not being swatted around by your prayers you have to align yourself with what god has planned but you aren't changing his eternal decree by your prayers now i know you're thinking whoa that's kind of heavy well it gets worse third point know what prayer is this is the this is the second Artificial point, but the third in the sermon. Um, I know people come up to me and go, what was that? I missed one. Um, Know what prayer is. Know what prayer is. Prayer, simply put, is talking to God. Prayer is like having a direct phone line to God. But God's phone doesn't have a speaker. It doesn't have a microphone on his. He only has the, the, the part that you put in your ear. So he listens to you. That's what prayer is. You call up God, he listens. That's what prayer is. But realize this. If you are a Christian living in sin, or if you are an unbeliever, God hangs up on you. He hangs up. The scriptures make this clear. David, who is a man after God's own heart, said this in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, which means he won't answer my prayer. Proverbs 15, 8 and verse 29 say this. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Verse 29 says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. In Proverbs 28, 9, we read, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, which means obeying the scriptures, even his prayer is an abomination. The Pharisees had it right when they said to Jesus in John 9:31, "We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him." And they had it right. Let me explain why this is. God is a holy God. And if you're going to approach a holy God, you need to be holy. But you aren't. 
And so what God did out of love for you is send his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to suffer, to pay the penalty for sin, so that you, through faith in him, could be justified, reconciled to God, made holy, so you can approach a holy God. Yet an unbeliever rejects God's love, he rejects Jesus, he refuses to submit to God, he refuses to walk in obedience to the word of God, and so he, when he prays, he's never praying with God-glorifying motives. So even if an unbeliever prays according to God's plan, and even if what he prays comes to pass, his prayer is still an abomination to God because it's not according to the glory of God. It's not for that purpose. It has other wicked ends. But even if you are a believer and you have been justified and you have access to boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in a time of need, don't ever come with unconfessed sin on your heart except for the very purpose of confessing that sin. You come to God and you think, well, I know I've got this sin in my life, but I'm going to pretend like I don't and I'll pretend like God doesn't know. And then I'm going to go before him. It's like dragging some, you know, fly ridden, maggot, wretched, rotting carcass before the throne of grace. And then to pretend like it's not there. No one notices, even though the stench is in the nostrils of God. And then you say, oh, Lord, you know, how about if you do these things? The only thing he wants you to do is get that thing out of here. So you need to make sure that even if you're a believer, you don't come to God. So if you're an unbeliever, the exception is this. God will hear your prayer if it's an Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 prayer. Which says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You an unbeliever? You want God to hear your prayers? It starts with this. Going before the Lord, seeking the Lord, forsaking your wicked ways, turning from your unrighteous thoughts, going to God and then... He has compassion, he forgives you, he hears you. If you're a believer, 1 John 1, 9, you need to confess your sins so he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't drag the carcass before the throne of grace and pretend like God doesn't know it's there. He knows, he sees it, he smells it. Even if you have it hidden, it's not hidden from him. So, point being, prayer is talking to God. If you don't know Christ, or if you are a believer living in sin, I don't care how earnestly you pray, God hangs up. Fourth, know what prayer isn't. And I want you to know right now, we are going to slay some sacred prayer cows. And the blood is going to flow. Some of you have grown up in churches, you've been taught things, you've heard things so many times. You're just... You just think they're true. You're, you're convinced they're true. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? You've never actually looked at it. You've never really thought through it. You just, you just believe it's true. I'm going to kill them right now. And this is what's going to happen. Then you're not going to know what to do. And then I'm going to end the sermon. And you're going to have to come back next week. Lord willing. But that's just how it is. So let's go after these sacred prayer cows. And slam one by one. First, prayer is not when God talks to you. 
Prayer is not when God talks to you. If you want to hear from God, read your Bible. Listen to a sermon. Go to a Bible study. Read a good book that teaches the Word of God. But contrary to popular charismatic theology, God does not speak to you in prayer. He may bring to your remembrance what he has already told you from his word from different places. He may give you desires. He may convict you. He may encourage you. He may give you joy. He may give you peace. But I'm telling you, if you want God to speak to you and give you direction, you open the book. Because that's how God speaks to us is through the scriptures. But if you want to speak to God, you go to him in prayer. But don't think prayer is some way, some place where you kind of get all of these special inspired revelations from God. And every time you pray, God kind of gives you your own personal little direction. Mm, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. He may give you desires in the direction of his will, but that's not speaking. That's giving you desires. Don't confuse them. Secondly, prayer isn't for getting what you want. Prayer is about getting what God wants. Prayer is about having God's will done in your life. Not your will done in your life. Now, if you happen to know what God's will is because you have read it in the Bible and you want that and you pray for that, then that's fine. What you want is what God's want. But if you are not sure something is God's will, then you better tack on the end of your prayer. Thy will be done, not mine. Third, prayer requests are not more likely to be answered if more people pray. Prayers are not like commercials that you put before God, and if you bombard God with enough commercials, he's going to buy the product. That's not how it works. Listen, God is going to do what God is going to do. And as Yoda might tell us, size of the prayer group matters not. Listen, if one person in this room prays according to the will of God and 10 million Christians pray contrary to the will of God, who gets their prayer answered? The one. The one. Four. Prayers are not more likely to be answered if you pray in close proximity to the event. You're laughing. I know you know this. Oh, so-and-so is going to have surgery at 1 o'clock p.m. Let's pray right at that time. Why not right now? You see, and implied in that statement is that a prayer at the time is a little bit more effective than a prayer before the time. The scriptures teach God is working on bringing his will to fruition before we even ask. I can pray a month, a week, a day before the surgery. It's just as effective as if I pray at the time. Five. Prayers are not more likely to be answered if you hurt yourself to pray. You know, listen, man, if I get up at 3 a.m. in the morning, if I kneel on a bed of nails in the Arctic... Then God will hear me because I'm really hurting myself. You know, I mean, I'm suffering now. And some people have this idea that if it's hurt, if it hurts, then uh, you'll probably get it answered. If it doesn't hurt, if you've just eaten a big lunch and you're sitting in your easy chair, that prayer doesn't have near as much chance as the bed of nails prayer. (laughs) Not true. Six. Prayers are not more likely to be answered if you pray the same thing more times. Jesus talked to the pagans who think that they will be heard by their vain repetition. Okay, I'm going to do a hundred Hail Marys. If that doesn't work, I'm doing 200. And finally, God's going to realize, hey, listen, 
This guy's prayed so many times. I'm going to alter my divine decree now and give him what he wants. Not in your life. No, Jesus did teach we are to have importunity in prayer or persistence in prayer. But we are not to think that the volume of prayers or the number of prayers are somehow more effective. He wants us to continually trust him in our prayer. But he doesn't want us to think that the mere number of times we pray a little prayer is going to happen to increase its effectiveness. No. That we're going to get our answer because, you know, we did it 300 times rather than 200. Seven, prayer is not a means for you to speak to others. This is the preacher's favorite fault. He preaches the sermon, then preaches another sermon in prayer. You go to a Bible study, and all of a sudden somebody's leading the study, and they want to talk to this person over there because they, they have a problem with that person over there, but they're praying. And so instead of praying to God, they're really preaching at this person. And so they use their prayer time as a mean to speak to somebody else. That's hypocrisy. Don't do it. Listen, if, if you need to say somebody, say something to somebody, then go say something to somebody. If you want to pray to God, then pray to God. But don't pretend you're praying to God just because you're too chicken or cowardly to go speak to somebody face to face. Don't use prayer as a means to speak to other people. Eight. Prayer is not something you are to do to be seen by men. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees about this, didn't he? There are some people, you know, who just jump at an opportunity to prayer, pray. You know, you're in a group. I'll pray. I'll pray. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Seated among the cherubims and throned on high. Thou hast. They lapse into Elizabethan English. You think, whoa, this guy is good. And then afterwards, he kind of goes, amen. You think, man, that guy is spiritual. That's not why you pray. Don't pray to be seen by men. That's sin, not prayer. Nine, prayer isn't the means by which you can change the eternal decree of God. And we've mentioned this already. We're going to mention it again, and we're going to mention it next week. You cannot buy your prayers, move God around into the position you want him. I am sorry to tell you this. Prayer does not move the hand of God. Prayer moves you into the hand of God. Prayer is about God moving you into the position he wants you. Not you moving God in the position you want him. Ten. Prayer isn't something God needs. God is self-sufficient. So he's not up there in heaven thinking, oh, I wish they'd pray so I can. No, he doesn't need it. God doesn't need prayer. You need prayer. God can get glory from prayer. That's what his desire is. But he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need you to pray. You need to pray because you need it. Eleven. Prayer doesn't save you or anyone else. There's two ways this is true. You know, I could go up to somebody in the street, walk down to the mall and say, hey, check this out. Thousand dollars. Pray the sinner's prayer. Okay, I'll pray. Okay, there you go. All right, you're saved, right? Wrong. Why? Because praying the sinner's prayer doesn't save anybody. Get that. Prayer does not save anybody. God... By his sovereign will and choice through grace, by faith, after the hearing of the preaching of the gospel and the moving of the Holy Spirit, grants people repentance leading to salvation. 
Now, that can happen and be expressed in a prayer, but the prayer itself does not save you. Otherwise, we could just go pay people to pray the prayer. And there are a lot of people who have prayed the prayer who weren't saved. And who thought they are saved because they thought the prayer saved them. No, Jesus saves you by a divine act of God. Prayer is just you going to God and talking to him about it. There's another way that prayer doesn't save. Let's say you have a family member or a friend who is an unbeliever and you want them to be saved. Now, if God has not chosen that person before the foundation of the world, can your prayers get them retroactively chosen before the foundation of the world? No. Yet many people feel guilty. I I was to go to a Baptist church and people go, oh, yeah, so-and-so died and they didn't know the Lord. I should have prayed harder. And they're feeling all this guilt. And I said, why, why do people feel guilty about that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they think their prayers are going to save people. No, no, no. Their prayers do not save people. God saves people through the gospel message by his grace and mercy. All that the father give to the son come to him and, lose, and he loses none. Don't think your prayers save people. They don't. If we pray for a certain unbeliever and it's God's will to save them, they will be saved and you can't stop it. If we pray for somebody to be saved and they don't get saved because it's not God's will, there's nothing you can do to get them saved. God chooses whom he chooses. He has compassion on whom he is compassionate and mercy on whom he is mercy. And Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And listen, the number of people that God has chosen to save is not in flux. It's fixed. It's fixed. And I know this is painful for some of you. So let me just give you one more. Prayer isn't like magical pixie dust. Which you sprinkle around and make neat things happen. You know the world's whole idea of prayer without a direct object. Hey just pray about it and see what you get. You know let's go get a fortune cookie and find out what's going to happen in my life tomorrow. Same type of thing. No, that's not what prayer is for. Prayer is when a believer comes to a holy God and has a conversation with him, knowing he is all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise, and eternal, and that you, because of the death of Christ, have access to boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in a time of need. If your prayer lines up with God's will, you get what he wants. He wants. So there you have it. I know the blood is flowing up to the pews now. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Because I've done this before. Some of you are out there and you're thinking, well, Jack, why do I need to pray then? I mean, if God's plan is fixed and unalterable, then why pray? Why pray for the lost? Why ask God for things he has already determined To do or not do. Maybe you're out there, you're thinking to yourself, Jack, if what you're telling me is true, prayer doesn't change a single thing. Prayer is a needless exercise, a needless waste of time. And I know some of you are thinking that, and I want you to know that I know. And that is why next week, Lord willing, we're going to come back, and I'm going to show you that prayer does make a difference. Prayer does have great lasting effect. 
prayer is important. We need to pray. We need to continually pray, but not for some of the reasons that some of you think we do. So next week, we'll look at the commands that tell you to pray just to make sure you know you need to do it, even if it doesn't work. Secondly, the reason God wants you to pray, that is, we are going to find, about, find out about the effects and benefits of prayer. And third, how God wants you to pray. But let me encourage you as you leave here today with two things. One, prayer is not a useless exercise. It has great benefits. It's necessary. It's helpful. So keep doing it. Don't stop between this week and next. Secondly, let me encourage you to examine your own prayer life. Just last week, we'll take that as a sample. Is your life characterized by often slipping away to a secret place to pray? Yes or no? If it's no then you know what your first prayer needs to be to God, a prayer of confession. And ask God to make prayer a priority in your life. We need to be a church that takes prayer seriously, a church where each person who names the name of Christ is characterized by often slipping away to pray to the Father in secret. People say things like, you know, how come you don't have this? And how come you don't have this? And listen... The most important thing is that each individual pray to their heavenly father in secret. If the only time you pray is in a group, you're praying for the wrong motive. First, you do the private thing. And then after that, you can do the group thing if you want. But prayer is not about somebody else hearing you pray. Prayer is about you speaking to God. This is God's will for all of his children. We all need to strive towards that end. So let's apply this. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for what we've learned this morning. And Father, I know that there are people here that have probably rattled a little bit who are thinking to myself, well, how does this all work then? And Father, I pray that you would give them patience, that you would um, help them to have understanding as they think through these issues. I pray that maybe this week they would begin to start praying more diligently, more fervently. And Father, as we come back next week, if it be your will, and look at prayer one more time, I pray that our questions would be answered satisfactorily according to your will, according to your word. And Father, we would be a church that is diligent to pray at all times about all things according to your will. And Father, we pray this with confidence because we know it is your will. In Christ's name, amen.